Father, we give you thanks for another Sunday to come together as a community, as as a family, to give you praise, to love each other, to welcome those who might be with us, whether online or in person, that don't have a relationship with you and desiring them to come to repentance and come to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. Father, we thank you that we have this place that we can gather. So, Father, I pray that as we gather, that you would continue to bless, as you have so far, that you would continue to bless and teach and convict and encourage. God, we, that we would look to the scriptures for truth and that we would, we, would, we would find the grace that's in you and the help in you to live according to what it is that you say is true. And God, may we live lives that are set apart for you, striving to live according to the standards that you have given to us as we call ourselves followers of Jesus. There's a lot of weight that comes with that, God. So I pray that we would experience that. And so, God, I pray that you would take a passage that I feel like is kind of read over quickly by many or overlooked by many because it maybe it doesn't apply to me. Father, I believe every word in this book is for our good. And so, God, I pray that you would teach us, help us to be teachable, help us to hear, and then help us to apply. Holy Spirit, lead, lead this time, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen. So out of that book, Prevailing Prayer, um, I read this yesterday. Uh, every day, I've kind of made this commitment. I'm going to read 30 plus minutes of a book. Outside of scripture, just read a book. And so this is the one that I'm on. And I, and I like, uh, and I'm, just, I'm going to go through kind of a, a list of authors that I just have placed myself under um, to teach me, because you can learn from a whole lot of people from a whole lot of different generations and a whole lot of different places in life. And so, but this is one that's just been really touching me because I've been wanting to improve in prayer. And I don't know if you noticed that as we've been pushing that as a community and we're seeing answers to prayer, friends. Like that's the, that's the joy of it. We've, we've prayed for people. We've anointed them at the 915 to 945 prayer time. Uh, we've anointed them. We've prayed over them. We're seeing God work in their lives physically. It's pretty mind-blowing. But why should it be mind-blowing? And we should always be impressed when God does something, but why do we always... Does anyone else struggle with this? I pray, and yet my mind automatically get, gets ready for God's no. Does anybody pray like that? It's like, I'm going to pray, but it's, ah, he, I don't know if he's going to come through, so just in case, I'll get this ready. And I confessed that to him yesterday, and I said, God, I just want to be done with that mentality. I want to start with the yes, and then if you decide not to, then I trust that you're good, but not start with a no, and then just always be shocked. Hey, well, he really did hear me. But Dwight L. Moody said this in his book. He said, I firmly believe that the church of God will have to confess her own sins before there can be any great work of grace. There must be a deeper work among God's believing people. I sometimes think it is about time to give up preaching to the ungodly and preach to those who profess to be Christians. That's a hard statement to hear from a guy who was known for being evangelist. I mean, his whole heart was to preach to the lost. And yet he sits there and goes, I feel like I need to stop preaching to those who don't know God and start preaching to those who profess to follow God. And he explains, he says, if we had a higher standard of life in the church of God, there would be thousands more flocking into the kingdom. He sits there and goes, is it really our fault? But didn't Jesus say something like, hey, they they will know, the world will know that you are my disciples by how you have love for one another. 
If we're trying to tell people that the gospel actually changes us, that having a relationship with Christ, being, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit actually impacts us in this incredible, amazing way, and yet if people don't see the difference, then what are we inviting them to? We say, hey, God wants to change your life, and then you look at our lives, and we look no different. Or you look at the conduct of people in the church, and I get all of us have bad days. Has anyone had one of those days this week? Yep. You wish you could take those words back or that attitude back or that thing you did back. And I mean, I get that. And that's the struggle against sin. But friends, there's got to come a point where the church, we, the followers of Christ, we sit and go, hey, you know what? I've been called to something greater than myself. I've been called into relationship with God. And we'll look at, we'll look at these final verses when we finish up the message. I'm called to live in a, in a, my life in a manner worthy of the gospel. And when I look at people that don't know Jesus, I can say, hey, come follow me and I'll point you to Jesus because he's changed my life. But if I look no different than anyone else, then what am I inviting them to? Just a belief system? The friends in the church, we're supposed to be living above reproach. We're supposed to be living lives that are set apart, designed for righteousness, right living, right standards. According to what God has set up as commandments, we live in obedience to him. Instead of looking at the commandments of scripture and seeing which ones we agree with so we'll obey, we look at the commandments of scripture and say, God, teach me your truth and give me what's necessary that I might actually obey you because I love you. But friends, if we look no different, then what are we inviting them to? And then if we look no different, why would they want to come? That's what he's saying. That there is this standard of conduct in word, thought, and deed that comes with taking on the name follower of Jesus. That we're supposed to change how we think and trust the Holy Spirit's going to change us as well. But then we begin to say, God, show me how to think. Show me how I'm supposed to feel in this situation. Help me to speak the right words. Help me to do the right things. There's a standard of conduct that comes with me claiming to say I'm a follower of Jesus. I guess my question for us is, are we living according to that standard? Because I'm convinced that God expects it. And not only does he expect it, he deserves it. There's this prayer in Psalm 139. And I, when I read it yesterday, when I was putting my notes together... I wrote this, what would it look like in the church if every person who professed Christ prayed this following prayer and responded appropriately every single day? What if we prayed this and then responded appropriately? Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there, are, and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. What if tomorrow, every single one of us, that's how we started our day? God, search me. But how many of you go, I don't know if I want to just search every part of me. If I said, hey, I want you to go home, I want you to search yourself. Just search yourself. Just search your heart. Search your heart. Guys, isn't that kind of easy, though? Let's be honest. Aren't we good at deceiving ourselves? It's like, well, I'm, I know I've got to work on this, but I'm not as bad as. And then we start to compare and we get into this. I'm not as bad as this person. At least I'm better than this person. And that's just called pride. But when you look at God and say, God, search me and know my heart. 
God, I want you to point out anything in my life that is grievous against you. Do you realize that God does not pull punches? He will bring those things up. He will call them out and he will not relent until he changes those things in us. Friends, that's why this prayer is so important. When David wrote this part in the psalm to close up Psalm 139, he's finishing up this song as he's writing it out. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. And so I wanna invite all of us that tomorrow we say this in the morning. Or whenever you spend time alone with the Lord, especially, but especially when you start off the day, God, just search me, test me, try me, confront me, lead me in the way of everlasting. And then God, give me the grace that I might live according to what it is that you convict me of by your strength, by your power, in your grace, but to live in a manner worthy of Jesus. This next part I bring up, I don't say it out of arrogance, it's just breaking my heart. That over the, especially the past five or 10 years, and I know that these scandals have been around since the church began, I get that. But especially the last five to 10 years, as I'm watching mega church pastors or church leaders falling left and right, and I just sit and I go, God, what's going on? I mean, a lot of them are looking, go, man, these are the people that I, I've listened to for years. They've impacted my life. And again, this isn't a judgment to get them against them, but I'm sitting there going, why, God? Why does this seem to be a little bit more of an endemic or a, pan, a spiritual pandemic for the church? Because every time it happens, it seems to always make the news. And it gives everyone else a reason not to, and yet the things that don't make the news are when we help the poor or feed those who are hungry or help those who lost their home in a fire. It's like, you don't, that doesn't make the news, but just the fall. And I keep sitting there going, God, what is it? What have we done? Like, where can we go? Because I remember when I first started in the quote unquote ministry, when I first became a youth pastor, and I, and I heard the statistic at a youth pastor's conference where the speaker said, I don't remember who it was, but they said this and it's terrifying. One out of 10 pastors finish well. And I went, what? I mean, I mean I'm, I'm just starting out. And then I started thinking, why am I doing this? Like, why am I gonna jump in? I got a 10% chance of making it. And so I remember I listened to that and I got back to the hotel room because we had another day the next day. I said, God, I wanna do everything I can in my life, anything in my power that I could be one of the 10% that I could finish well, that I could stand before you. It doesn't mean I don't have scars. It doesn't mean that I would never, that I don't have any kind of regrets, but I do not want to do anything that disqualifies me from the role that you have called me to. That I want to set up safeguards and guardrails in my life and I want to be committed first and foremost to loving Jesus above loving the ministry. But God, I don't want to be the 90%. And I, like I said, that was couple decades ago. And I don't know what the statistic is now, but I just keep, I feel like I'm just seeing it happening left and right, left and right. And then every time I'm like, God, would you bless them? Would you help them? Would you help them heal? Would you help them be restored? Would you help them repent, go through the process of healing, all those things? But God, would you help us who've been called in some leadership role to submit ourselves completely to you? Because I think it's important, and I wrote this in my notes, Christ-like character is of greater value in primary necessity over personal charisma or giftings. 
It's almost like what we've bought into in the church, especially in the States, here in the 20th, 21st century. It's like, just find the person with the greatest charisma, giftings, that's what you want. Get that person up there that can just draw a crowd. But it's amazing how success, when it's not built on foundation that's strong, can actually build into a person's ego and lead them astray rather than keeping them forward focused on Jesus. It starts with godly character. Friends, I want to make sure that we continue as a church community where we're looking for that, but we're challenging one another to move forward in godly character. And not just for giftings. Guys, I say this um, tongue-in-cheek. Hey, you were not saved to do ministry. But you were saved by Jesus to have relationship with Jesus. And the ministry that he calls us to is a byproduct of our love affair with him. It doesn't supersede it. It doesn't come in place of it. It should never be this. Where all of a sudden, years and years and years ago, I would find myself spending less time with God during the busy weeks of quote-unquote ministry because I actually believed that I was actually that necessary. And so my time alone with him become, would become optional. I would push it to the side. I'll get to it later. Because right now I'm doing something that is kingdom-minded, kingdom-focused. This is impacting the kingdom as if God's sitting there going, if Brian doesn't do it, nobody's going to do it. He's the only guy on the planet right now that can do it. All the while forgetting that God in the Old Testament picked a donkey to speak his word to a person. And if God can use a donkey and use any word you want there, if God can use a donkey, he does not need me. And so we pick up here in verse five. And Paul says to his his buddy Titus, he says, this is why I left you in Crete. No pressure. It doesn't sound like, hey, I left you and a whole bunch of people with you in Crete. He's like, hey, you, you Titus, alone, by yourself, I want you to go to Crete, which is the largest island in Greece. I know there's probably about 100 cities, give or take, 100 towns and cities on Crete, but I'm gonna send you there and I want you to do something. But I'd sit there and go, you're just sending me for this place by, by myself? And yet we've looked at Titus, that he's the guy that could be trusted with it. But friends, we also know the church was probably founded around the time of the day of Pentecost. For those that maybe not brought up in the church and don't know what I'm talking about, in Acts chapter 2, the early disciples are all in a room, about 120 of them, and they're praying. And Jesus had told them in Acts chapter 1, hey, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That word Power is where we get our, the Greek word for power is where we get our English word for dynamite. And they sit there and go, okay, so the power is supposed to come when the Holy Spirit comes upon a person. And then according to the scriptures, we receive the Holy Spirit when we surrender our lives to Christ, according to Ephesians chapter one. And so then if therefore the Holy Spirit is in me and the Holy Spirit is, with the Holy Spirit comes the power of God. I then need to look at my life and say, does my life convey to the world that I have the power of God at my disposal? Or am I just doing pretty good? So on that day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon those early disciples. It says that it looked like flames of, or tongues of fire above their heads. And then they all started speaking different languages. 
And it was earthly languages because there's a whole lot of people outside. Day of Pentecost, there'd be hundreds of thousands of people all in Jerusalem again, and yet there'd be a group outside of this house and they're all hearing it in their own native tongue. They're from all over the place. Can you imagine? Here I am, white cracker guy, just busting out some sweet, smooth Spanish. Just, but I know I've never taken it. Well, I have, but I was horrible at it. Can you just, I just start speaking it. And all of a sudden people that's their native tongue are going, who's this? Have you looked at him? I know he's white. He's cracker white. Like, how do you get that? I don't know. Now all of a sudden, person over here speaking a completely different language and over there, and everyone's speaking all these different languages and you're hearing it in your own tongue. This is what happens. This was their response. Verse seven, and they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pig Latin, I'm just joking, and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Somebody was there from Crete listening and that person went back home and started sharing Maybe they just looked for what? Maybe they just looked for the one. Guys, I used to be that pastor that's like, guys, go back and win your whole city by yourself. Do it. Glendora folk, go back. Take them on. You by yourself, just go around. It's your responsibility. Get them. You can win the whole city tomorrow. I used to think it has to be this massive thing. And I've just kind of come to realize that I think the movement of the gospel is best done when you just find the one. Find the one for the day, find the one for the week, and then everyone does that. So if right now, say there's 150 of us, give or take, and if all of us looked for the one today, God, show me who's the one. 150 people will hear something about Jesus today. Then tomorrow we do the same thing. 150 more hear about Jesus. But if every single follower of Jesus did that every single day, I don't think that I need these massive events to try to get people to hear about Jesus because the church is actually doing it. So someone or a group of people from Crete go back to Crete and the church starts there on this, on this little, or this big island. But remember the Cretans, remember, which is really, think the Cretans, that's their reputation. And when I hear the word Cretan, it doesn't sound like a very positive term. Like we've used it kind of as a negative. This was their reputation. Always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's them. And then on top of that, you have these false teachers that are there. And so doesn't it seem like everything is stacked against Titus? I want you to go back. I want you to do what, what seems impossible. And guys, I don't know about you. I'd feel a little bit discouraged if I keep going the same, doing the same thing over and over and not see anything happen. You say, well, when God does great things, like when God speaks, everything changes. It's true, but what if you're in the season where you're just preparing everyone? Here's an example. So Jeremiah, the prophet in the Old Testament, do you realize that he preached faithfully for 50 years and never saw one person repent? And yet he stayed faithful to the call. Guys, I gotta be honest, after about 52 days of preaching and seeing no one repent and pretty much everyone now wants me dead or thrown in prison. It might be a little hard for me to then listen to other people going, God just wants to make your life easy. God wants, to make your, God wants to make your life comfortable. He is so good at making sure that your life is easy. 
I might listen to that and go, really? Because I've been going for... I've been going for 16 years and I'm not seeing anything change. And in fact, more people hate me than ever before. But I guess it comes down to this. I guess I love Jesus more than I do everyone else's opinion of me. But it's, you got to kind of talk yourself into that. So it just kind of seems overwhelming at times, right? And so on, uh, I think it was on Friday, I was in the garage lifting and this song came on called Hallelujah Anyway. Ren Collective, anybody heard of Ren Collective? I know they've been around for a while, but I, I like them. It just kind of came up on my playlist, and they had this one line in it, and I thought it was so powerful. And I, and I read it to Dylan yesterday. I was like, don't you get it? And he goes, I don't. I'm like, oh, that's such a letdown, because this is so life-changing. How could you not? You're a son of a pastor. You should be brilliant. They say this, the line is this, I'll find a way to praise you from the bottom of my broken heart because I think I'd rather strike a match than curse the dark. And I think we have a culture where we'd rather curse the dark. We just want to blast everyone. We want to blast the darkness. We want to blame every, all the problems we're going to blame. We're going to focus on the darkness rather than strike a match in the darkness so you see the difference. If we had the ability to go completely dark in this room, I mean, cover up all the windows, go completely dark, you can't see anything, and all of a sudden I just light a match, everyone would pay attention to it. But we're very quick to do what? I'm just gonna curse the darkness rather than give praise. So in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of what's going on, I will choose to make the decision that I will continue to praise God. So my question is, will we strike a match to show the difference of the gospel or merely curse the dark, be like everybody else? Well, we show the difference of the gospel. So why did Paul leave Titus in Crete? He said, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I, had, as I directed you. He said, put what remained or unfinished into order. Guys, it's that word order we got to hold on to also. Guys, there is so much freedom in Jesus when we come and worship. It's beautiful. But also in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, God lays it out. There's supposed to be order in worship. Like there should be these times where, whether it's here on a Sunday morning, or if you're in your home church and you're gathering with Christians, it's like, okay, even, I think Paul even says, hey, there's maybe two or three of you. Maybe, or maybe there's a bunch of you that has a prophetic word. You want to share something that God is really putting on your heart to share of truth. Maybe two or three of you should share at a time, but never over one another. If all of a sudden someone has this, this gift of tongues, they speak, but an interpreter has to be there. You can't just go off and do your own thing. Why? Because God is a God of order. He says, I want to appoint you. I want to make sure when you go there, appoint elders. Now, the way that we look at elders, we look at elders as just older people. But it's different. It's a, it's a word that is interchangeable with the word for overseer. And the word overseer means this, a guardian, a supervisor, or a keeper. So this is kind of what has happened, I think, in the church. A lot of times we take passages that were written in the first century in that context and apply all those things to the church here in the 21st century. Thinking, well, the way that it runs in the 21st century is exactly how it ran back in the day. But if you start to think, okay, the first two or 300 years, there was no building for the quote-unquote church to gather and they just met in homes. Yet the gospel continued to move out. And so I just can't picture this. Hey, we've got a, there's a group of us, about 20 of us. I'm going to appoint elders. So out of the 20, half of us are going to be on an elder board. And from the elder board, then we're going to get a deacon board. So then we're all on a board. And then when there's room, we're going to get a mission board. We're going to have all these boards. 
Guys, just don't picture it like that. Guys, that's an organization. That's how a business runs. And there's nothing wrong with how those run. But is that exactly what God has called the church to be? The other danger is like, well, you, you call an elder and that person's in complete charge and can never be questioned. Listen, they're going, where'd you get that from the passage? Or where do you get from the passages of scripture that that's how it's supposed to be? But God, but God wanted, according to what it is that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote, he wanted elders in every church to what? To guard, to keep, to protect, to encourage, to instruct God's people. So what do I think that elder is for us today? I think it's this position that I have. And it's terrifying. And then there's four men that I said, hey, I want to place myself in submission to you that are co-elders with me. That I confess things that I struggle with and I help, and hey, keep me accountable or call me out if I'm doing something off or you hear me teaching something that's wrong. Call me out on it. And they also encourage and they shepherd and they care. And how do I see deacons? I think deacons are those who have leadership roles in the community. Men and women. Men and women. And so there's this core leadership team, men and women, who speak into things, and I'm asking questions, and they're speaking it back. So it's not just, I'm the elder. Just shut your mouth. I'm anointed and appointed for this position. You have no say. And because I walk in the room, then the Shekinah glory of God surrounds me. And anything that comes out of my mouth is thus saith the Lord. Guys, I think for those of you that have known me a long time, you know that's not true. There are things that come out of my mouth. It's like, did he just seriously say that? I can't picture Jesus talking like that. He, I picture Jesus a little bit more eloquent. Guys, that's not how it rolls, and that's not how it's supposed to be. But setting up elders was a normal thing for Paul. He says, in fact, in, in Acts chapter 14, let me read it real quick, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. That's a great verse. Let me encourage you. Hey, if you don't know the Lord, this could happen to you. You give your life to Christ and man, they might kill you for it. And then right after that, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. The place they just dragged him out of, he went right back in. Because I gotta be honest. If a, person, if a group of people just got done throwing stones at me in order to kill me and I'm bleeding and all of a sudden I wake up, I don't know that the first thought is, I'm going back in. I might be like, can I get a Band-Aid? And then can we go this direction, not this way? And Paul just gets up. But guys, think of the testimony. He walks back in. Can you imagine the ones that were pelting him, thought they killed him and he looks at him. And it's that old kind of Western move. And he's staring him down. And this, then it says he goes on from there. Watch. Verse 20, uh, verse 20, yeah, verse 20. And the next day he went on uh, with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. He came back to the people who tried to kill him. Guys, that is a drop mic moment. You just walk in. And maybe he's holding a stone. Maybe he's holding a rock. He's like, who wants some? Then watch what happens in verse 22. This is what he does. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Guys, I gotta be honest. If they tried to kill a dude, I'm watching them try to kill Paul. I thought he was dead. He then stands up, comes back in, takes off for a little bit, then comes back. 
that dude would encourage me to keep going. As he's got scars on his body, he's, got, he's still kind of bruised up a little bit, but he's got these scars now. If I look at him and say, hey, keep going, don't give up on Jesus, I'd sit there and go, I'm not gonna give up on Jesus. Guys, there's a testimony that comes flying out because he actually had scars because of Jesus. And saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders from, for them in every church, appointing elders in every single church, every little home, house, church that met. He's like, appoint people who will protect my people, who will guard and protect and keep them. I want to make sure that they're cared for. Because friends, that is the main job of the overseer or elder. Here's what I used to think it was. I'm supposed to convince people to come and I'm supposed to convince you to bring people and you bring tons of people. Why? Because I will preach. And all of them will get saved. And it's about me. Pop the collar, walk out, I'm it. And just convince people to keep doing more ministry and make yourselves overly busy. And some at the expense of your own family and your own time with your family. But then you read the scriptures. And what is the role of the elder? What is it that I'm supposed to do? And every elder that has the responsibility of the people of God, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And here's the responsibility, to care for the church of God. That is the responsibility of the overseer, just to care for you, to look out for you, to protect you, to guard you, to hear how you're doing, to come alongside, to encourage, but to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And then you get to verse 6. He says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are, be are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. That phrase, above reproach, means there's nothing hidden. I'm not hiding anything from you. What you see here is what you'll see if you come to my house. What you see here is what you'll see me doing by myself. Maybe not preach, I don't preach to myself, but how I live in front of you is how I'm supposed to be living by myself. It's called integrity. Not trying to hide in sin, but repent from it. It says a husband of one wife, and then talks about his children. And this is what I think is so important. God never calls overseers or any follower of Jesus to do his ministry at the expense of the family that he's entrusted to them. But the family that he's given to us is never a cop-out or an excuse as to why I won't say yes to what Jesus may call me to do for a season that requires sacrifice. And the only way that I can know the difference and the only way that you can know the difference is to be constantly asking him, abiding him, God, what do you want me to do? Do you want me engaged in this part? Do you want me to do this ministry? And there's times where he's gonna say, no, I don't. So he's saying to overseers, hey, you gotta make sure your family's taken care of. Hey, I need you to be a one-woman man. That's what that one phrase means, the husband of one wife. A one-woman man. Be committed to your wife. Love her well. When he says in, in, in Ephesians chapter five, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's service. It's laying down my rights, my life for my wife. For Kelly, just saying, okay, I give up everything to love and serve and lead you. It's not machismo. It's not, I'm the man, shut it. 
Do what I say. Get my slippers and make me a sandwich. And when I lay myself down, I say, God, I give up my life because I want to worship you. And therefore, I love her as you love the church. When I do that, guys, that is worship to God. And that is honoring to my wife. And when God's word then looks at her and says, wives, I want you to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. She's not sitting there going, but he's a jerk. There might be days. There might be days. But she doesn't look at it as a chore because we're in this dance together. We're moving through in the places and the roles that we have in this life. As I sacrifice and give up myself for her and she's submitting to me as to the Lord, it's like, this is something that God has set up as beautiful when done correctly, but I'm supposed to take care of home first. Here's the thing. Guys, I've watched leaders who've gone through times where their children are, de- are described as um, in, engaged in debauchery or insubordination, and I've watched a leader go before a board of elders and say, I need to resign because I am not living in accordance with what it is that God has said here. Willingly, not thrown out. But it was a chance for him to say, I need to stop. I need to focus on my family. I need to focus on my daughter. Because that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? He says the same kind of thing in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? I love how Paul equates, hey, caring for my family is equal to caring for the church. It's like we're caring for a family. But if I'm horrible at home, why do I think that I'll be great with everybody else? He says, I need you to take her of home first. Verse seven, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Friends, I think that's important for an overseer as God's steward. That word steward means manager. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but I would imagine that with a group this, with this many people here or watching online, that many of you grew up in a different church different church setting, different church culture. And for some of you, you look back at that and say, best time ever. Oh my gosh, I loved our church community. But growing up, I just, oh, it was just a, such a loving place and the pastor was awesome and my youth pastor was great and I just remember all my friends and, and you're going through that, great. But maybe for others of you, you've seen this done poorly. But all of a sudden, the person in charge is like, shut it, I got it. I'm the pastor. I'm the pastor. Therefore, you must do as I tell you. And at some point, that individual forgot that they were God's manager and they did not become your owner or your ruler. I manage what it is that God has entrusted. That's what elders are supposed to do. You manage what belongs to God. You don't replace God. You manage what belongs to him. In other words, friends, this is not my church. And you are not my flock. You belong to God. Guys, I remember when I got to borrow a Corvette. I know. This was years ago. I surprised Kelly. I didn't even tell her. And I don't know if it was really for her, if it was really for me. It was a six-speed Corvette, and it was a manual transmission, so I actually had to shift 
which I was like, I forgot how to do this. I thought it was an automatic, and so when I showed up, and I'd learned how to do that back in the day on an old uh, Chevy Blazer. But a Chevy Blazer and a Chevy Corvette are completely different. And then when I got in the car, and he's like, oh, do you know how you know to drive stick? I'm like, well, of course I do. Of course, I'm a man. I've done it for years. And so as I'm ba- I put it in reverse, and all of a sudden it's like, and I'm like, no, it's good. That's how I roll. I remember he told me, he's like, hey, I want you to, because in my head, don't crash it. Like in my head, just don't crash it. I got to bring this back looking better than I, than I borrowed it. And at some point he goes, Brian, you got to promise me something. I thought, I know, I know, I'm going to take care of it. He goes, no, 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 no. You got to promise me to hit 100. I've never had anyone say that to me. I'm not going to tell you whether it happened or not. It's none of your business. But I made sure when I brought it back that I cared for, I took care of it. I made sure I parked in spots that were further away. I didn't take two spots. I thought that'd be a little arrogant for those of you who do it. Stop it. But for those, <laughs> but I made sure I parked away from everyone else when, when with my car, I didn't care. I mean, I'd park right next to you, slap the door. I don't care. It's all jacked up. If you've seen Tommy, Tommy the Tahoe, 315,000 miles, this thing's a tank, but man, it's got things just falling off. It's awesome. But if you want to bang it, I don't care. But the vet, man, keep it away. Keep it away. Let it fly back off. Why? Because I'm, I'm, I'm a steward. I'm not the owner. I care for that which belongs to something else because they care for it. And I should care for it the same way that they do. And when I look at Jesus and how he cared for his church, he submitted himself to the point of death. He served. He cared for. He placed himself last. He became the servant of all. Not the one expecting to be served. Friends, that's the danger when all of a sudden we get a place of power, like a position of power in any way. Or we equate a position that's mentioned in the scriptures with a powerful position. Friends, I feel like the overseer position is not the place of power, but the place of service. Back to verse 7. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Violent? Like, what is that? Why would you have to tell an overseer, don't be violent? Because I didn't know this. I read this just two days ago. Paul had to write this, tell, hey, Titus, go tell the overseers. Those that you appoint, they are not allowed to be violent. Why? Because there were people who were overseers, there were men who were overseers, who when they met, quote unquote, erring members, they would become violent physically with them to get them back in order. And I thought, I, I don't know if I'd want to do that. That just seems a little extreme. I mean, I, think, I feel like when I start, it's like, yeah, let's do that. Let's just get hardcore. But then I look and go, I just don't think that that's right. Whether it's physically or emotionally, never to take advantage of the cross, never to take advantage of the gracious gift and calling that God has given to an overseer and elder, but to manage what it is that God has entrusted to them. So we see what an elder is not supposed to be. What is an elder supposed to be? Or what should they be? Verse eight, but hospitable. That word hospitable, hospitable means a lover of strangers. Oh, crud. Shy people, you know what I'm talking about? Don't, don't, you're not going to put your hand up because you're too shy. 
Introverts, this is like, ah, oh, but you don't understand. I need my alone time. Hello, me too. But isn't it amazing how often I can say no to what God expects from me because it doesn't fit my personality? Something like this. Quick-tempered. Remember that quick-tempered part? What about if you're Irish? Because I always hear this. I'm Irish. I got an, I got an attitude. I'm quick-tempered. Man, I got, a, I got a short fuse. That's who I am. As if God's sitting there going, I totally forgot. I forgot, I'm, I forgot you're Irish. That means you've got a quick temper. You don't have to do that part. You just be a jerk to everybody. Just do it. God, I'm shy. And I think at some point God's like, and? I still want you to go. Out of the 12 disciples that, God, that Jesus called, out of those 12 that he turned into apostles that he sent out, do you think that any of them might have been shy? Or do you think they all had the exact same personality? Friends, my preferences do not dictate whether or not I obey what it is that God has said. So if he says, I want you to be hospitable while well, I'm shy, but be a lover of strangers. In fact, no one should ever feel like a stranger when they meet you. Everyone should feel like they already have a friend. That's, it. That's how it's supposed to be. A lover of good, self-controlled, upright, Holy means set apart or loyal, faithful servant to Jesus and disciplined. That's what an elder is supposed to be. And friends, I used to not have a, a couple, a few of those. Like the disciplined part. When I was first a youth pastor, guys, there was so much joy in that. I loved it. And most of it, well, not most of it, a lot of it was this. I just loved hanging out with the students. I did. And then I realized students don't eat like adults. And I love that. Like, hey, you want to go get burgers? Yes, I do. And I want to put some chili cheese fries with that burger just because the chili's healthy somehow. Because when you pray over the meal and you ask God to nourish your body, he changes the molecular structure and all the crap and it turns into great food. So God, I thank you that gravy can be like water. And then I can take this 44 ounce of soda and I can just down that circuit, but refill it before you go. Why? Because I don't want to be a waster. And I like a good deal. Until all of a sudden I had a physical. And the doctor said, this was when I was 30. So like six years ago. I'm just joking, a little while ago. He says, you're pre-diabetic. Your triglycerides are over 700. I know. I don't even know what that means. I just know that's bad. You got to make some changes. I was like, I should probably stop drinking soda because I was drinking four of those 44 ounces a day. And not the cheap stuff. Not like diet soda. If you're going to do it, go hard. Mountain Dew, come on, yes. And I'm not going to lie, I still feel it. During the summer day, I'm like, there it is. There it is. I just want to stick my mouth under that and just go for it. But eight or nine years without, I'm like, God, please keep giving me discipline to get up and to work out, to get up and to read. Then my mornings look for like an hour, an hour. I'm in the word, just in, in, word and, in the word and in prayer. And then every day, at least closing or if not opening the day, 30 minutes of reading, I've just set up these little routines for myself to be disciplined. And I don't say this like, oh, look at me. It's like, because that's not what I was. But I want to be disciplined in what it is that God has set up for me. And the calling that is given to me. 
that I could hear him say, well done. What is an elder supposed to do? Verse nine, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That first phrase, he must, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Hold firm to the word. And friends, I think that's something that all of us can hold to. That is why every year we will have some type of Bible reading plan. And this year is we're going to go through the whole Bible in a year. But I don't know about the next one. Maybe we're going to go a little slower next time. But let's be in the word. He's like, well, why are we going so fast? Guys, it's four chapters usually, give or take. You know how much time that takes? I do. 15, 20 minutes? I promise you, if you turn, I promise you, if you turn the phone off, you can do it. I know TikTok is amazing. From what I've heard, you can learn so many great things. I heard you can, like the neck pillow. We've been using it wrong the whole time, friends. We've placed the opening in the front. It's supposed to be in the back so that when those of you who have heavy, head, heavy heads and they droop, boom, there it is. Problem solved. That did it. But you ever notice you go through one and you go through the next, you go through the next, and all of a sudden 20 minutes have passed by and you've been changed in absolutely no way. Brian, I need it. That's called addiction. It's just a, it's just a socially acceptable version of it. We have the time. And we'll always make the time for that which is most important to us. We will make the time. Every single time, we will make the time for what's important. But I think also that phrase, he must hold firm to the trustworthy the word as taught. That word as taught means to be teachable. Teachable, humble to receive instruction. I heard somebody say, leaders are learners. So my question is, are you a learner? It's like, I don't like to learn. That's a real shame. Why? Because the word, the... The meaning of the word disciple is literally the word learner. So if you're a disciple of Jesus, you've been invited to learn. We're supposed to follow him and learn from him. So who are you learning from? Are you engaged in the process of learning things that will make you and help you love Jesus more? Guys, it should not just be once a week on a Sunday morning from whoever's teaching behind this quote unquote pulpit it should be are you a learner what are you learning where are you listening who are you allowing to speak into your life and I actually believe we're supposed to be careful with that but are you learning and so I throw out this just to say guys I want to make sure you understand I don't sit in my office and go I have all the answers I still come to parts of the scriptures and go I don't know what I'm supposed to say here God I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this would you teach me and there's times where he won't. He doesn't let me have it in the moment. And it's mostly probably because I'm not ready for it yet. And then I'll come back later to He's like, now you're ready. Friends, there's, there's podcasts I listen to. Not a ton. I don't, I don't listen to a ton of podcasts, but uh, I always like hearing Francis Chan preach. I like Alistair Begg. I like hearing him preach. I also like their books. This is, this, these, are, these are authors that really have spoken into my life that God has used over the years. This new book, Dwight L. Moody, Prevailing Prayer. A woman by the name of Rebecca McLaughlin. Oh my gosh, she's blowing my mind. Love this stuff. 
There's two books. There's one that I'm reading right now, one that I've already finished. One was called Confronting Christianity, where she deals with like the hot topics. And then this next one I'm in the middle of reading with prevailing prayer, because sometimes I just can't stay focused. The Secular Creed, there's this new one coming out called uh, Confronting Jesus. Oh, they're so good. Another author, Brendan Manning, introduced me to the Abba-ship, the Abba relationship with God. I had a professor in my master's program and I read her book. She, had a, she wrote a book entitled something like Men and Women in Leadership. One of my favorite professors I've ever had. Why? Because she could get the whole class so irritated in four hours. So angry. Because she knew every aspect, every part. And I'm just sitting there going, I don't know what I'm supposed to think. One dude, one youth pastor friend of mine, he's sitting over here next to me. And at some point he got so mad, he just raised his hand and he says, can you just tell me the answer? Just tell me what I'm supposed to believe. And she goes, no. And then, so he's like, this is what I hold to. And then she'd smack him with it. Not physically, but she'd go the other side. And then the last 10 minutes, she'd land the plane. You're like, ah. Philip Yancey, J.C. Ryle, he's from the 1800s, Dallas Willard. There's a woman named Peggy Reynoso. She She wrote a chapter in a book titled The Kingdom of Life on the topic of how God forms us into his disciples through suffering. One of the greatest chapters on this topic of suffering I've ever read. A woman by the name of Rosario Butterfield, Jackie Hill Perry, Jim Cimbala, John Piper, John Mark Comer, Claire Smith, all these people, I sit under their teaching. Every time I open a book, it's like, teach me. It doesn't mean I turn my mind off. Wow, don't turn my mind off. I'm not used to my glasses. Don't turn my mind off. But here's the thing. I'm sitting under your teaching because I want to learn from you. I'll still think critically because I want to come to truth. But who else do I listen to? Anyone who fills this pulpit if I'm in person, if I'm here in person, I am placing myself under their, under their teaching. And if I'm not here in person, I listen to every single message and I place myself under them to learn from them. Why? Because I'm a follower of Jesus and because I'm his disciple, I'm a learner. I'm no greater than anyone else in the room. We're all called to this process. And then I learn from you all. Friends, I can't tell you how often it's just random things. Somebody will say something, I'm like, I need to remember that. And as I walk away, I'll open up a, a note app on my phone. I'll type it in there real quick. Then I can think about it later. I've learned how to pray by watching some of you pray over people. I'm like, okay, I want to apply that type of prayer to praying for people. I'll hear stories of people, some of you are sharing the Lord and how you share your faith. Like, okay, okay, maybe I'll try that to see if that works how I apply it. It's like, guys, it's not just, hey, listen to me, I've got the answers. No, you're teaching me. And for that, I thank you. I have a role. I'm not the answer. It's Jesus. He is the only answer in this community. And in this role, I will continually point us back to him. Friends, you don't need me. We need him. Finish up. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. In other words, I'm supposed to teach. But the word instruction is also, it's better translated as to encourage or to console or to urge. It's not just tell you information, but it's supposed to encourage you. And friends, if you knew me, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago when I preached, I pretty much came hardcore, just boom, nailed you. And I was like, Holy Spirit, I pray you just wipe up the mess. And I actually felt justified 
Because you just got to say it. Friends, I was so humbled and so encouraged when all of a sudden somebody came up to me about six years ago and said, there's something different about you. You're more pastorly. Which really kind of stung a little bit. It's like, well, you really sucked at it before. But now, you sound like a pastor. I knew what they meant. I wasn't just a preacher who pastored. I was a pastor who preached. But I also, the elders also called to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. Guys, I'm supposed to, and I don't like that part. But if we, if we have people that believe things that are not true according to the scriptures, I'm supposed to lovingly urge and encourage and rebuke. And at no point do I sit there and go, I cannot wait for tomorrow I get to rebuke. I'm convinced that these qualifications for elders still apply to today. So what? So what do we take out of it? What do you take out of it? It's like I'm just preaching to myself. Nope. Guys, what if we all applied these characteristics to our walks with Jesus? As the worship team comes back up, let me just read through. What if we all did this on a daily basis? What if we lived and ministered to our families first instead of at the expense of a greater purpose? Friends, I don't ever want to hear my boys say that they hate the church because daddy was always there. That's why I'm not afraid to tell people no. I've had people go, Brian, you know what we need to do? You know what we need to do? You know what that usually means? You know what you need to do? And so just beware. If you come and say, Brian, you know what we really need? I'm usually going to say, man, God has put it on your heart. Tell me, what are you going to do? No, 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 no. What are you going to do? I'm not going to do anything because God put it on, you didn't put it on my heart. You seem passionate about this, not passionate for me, passionate for that. You should, you should take it. I want my boys to love the church, to be blessed by the church, because we are just part of the church and daddy wasn't working for it. What if we remember that we are stewards of what God entrusts to us instead of owners and rulers of anything or anyone? What if we lived lives that were above reproach? What if we weren't arrogant, quick-tempered, violent, or greedy? What if we weren't prone to being driven by addictions, whether they're socially acceptable or not? What if we were known for being hospitable, lovers of strangers? What if we were known for being lovers of good? What if we were known for being self-controlled and disciplined? What if we were known for being upright and holy? What if we, were all, what if we all held firm to the trustworthy word? What if, we, what if we were all teachable, truly wanting to discover the truth? What if we were such good learners that we could instruct others in sound, in sound doctrine because actually know what sound doctrine is? And what if we held to truth and confronted falsehood according to the standards of Scripture with respect and gentleness, but also with boldness dripping in grace? What if every person in our church community did that and became people like that? And what if every, what if every person who professed that Jesus was Lord did this? We would look different. And I think we would look so different, we would actually make a difference. Friends, that's what we're supposed to be moving toward. Brian, that, that sounds like it's going to take a lot of effort. At what point did you think that following Jesus wasn't going to take effort? We say by grace through faith, but discipleship, that costs us everything. So let me just close. One verse. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Thanks for hanging in there. There's a lot in this passage. 
But Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So today, and as we get up tomorrow, your job, your school, adult, youth, students, whoever, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Students, on your campus, make Jesus look incredible. Parents, in your home, make Jesus look incredible to your family. Places of business, make Jesus look incredible. When you're ordering today at lunch, make Jesus look incredible. Side note, if I can have one minute. I remember asking servers, this was years ago. I was on a Sunday. And I asked, hey, what's the worst day to work? You know what they said? Sunday lunch. I said, really? I said, why? And, they didn't, and I told them at first, I said, I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian. And they didn't want to say it because, and I said, just say it. This is your chance. Let me have it. And one said, it's because Christians are so rude and they're so cheap. One of them said, for a tip, they gave me a track. I was like, what? You know they get taxed on their tips. So here's a, here's a track. Thanks for serving my table. What if Sundays became the day that every server was sitting there going, I want to work Sundays because they're so great. We're supposed to be different so we can make a difference. And God expects it and God deserves it. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the high calling that you've given us as followers of you. For those who have leadership roles, God, help us to live according to the standards, the character that you've given, that you've explained to us in your scriptures. But may we all strive for this, God. May none of us be content with, ah, at least I just prayed the prayer and I'll just wait for heaven. But when we take the name Christian, follower of Jesus, we'd actually live it because we love you. So in this last song, God, be pleased, be praised. We love you. We do it because we love you. Thank you for this church, God. Thank you for this community. I just love them to death. Help me manage. Help me care for them well. To your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen. Love you all more than you know.